Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H brighton.org. Morning, church. Good to see you all. Uh, If I've not met you yet, my name is Aaron. I get to be the pastor of our church. And if you're new, uh, we've been in a teaching series in the book of Genesis. We like to go books of the Bible at a time, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And this week we get to Genesis chapter 25. And sadly, our journey today with Abraham ends. Today he passes away and we've been journeying with him all the way since chapter 12. And as we get started, if you're taking notes, which I always encourage you to do, we're titling today's message, In the Waiting in the waiting. And as I was preparing for this, uh, I remembered this study uh, from a while back that I had heard of. And you've probably seen like a new revamped uh, model of this on uh, Instagram, but let me, let me share it with you. Uh, in 1972, there was this famous uh, psychological study that was known as the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Where they're taking uh, small children, four or five years old, and they're... Um, trying to research their ability to delay gratification for a longer prize. Some of y'all nod your head like, yeah, I studied that in school. And if you know children, you know how hard that must have been for them to wait, right? So here's how the study went, maybe if you're not familiar. Uh, They would bring the children into a room just by themselves, and they would place a single marshmallow on the table in front of the child. And the researcher would offer the child a deal. And they would say, hey, I'm going to leave the room. And if you can resist eating this marshmallow while I'm away, I'm going to come back and give you a second marshmallow. And so the children were left with these two options, right? Eat it immediately, which you know exactly which kid I would be. Eat it immediately or double their treat if they would wait. So then the researcher would leave the room and the whole thing then was recorded. So they studied each child and they, as you could watch and imagine, every kid wrestling with this decision, right? And there were some kids who just immediately as that door shut, they just gobbled up the marshmallow and it was like gone within seconds. And then they're just waiting for the researcher to come back in the room. There was others who would kind of look at the marshmallow, look at the door, look at the marshmallow. They would wiggle and bounce around a little bit. But eventually we know what happened. They would give in and eat the marshmallow. But there was a few Only a few children, which I would not be amongst their ranks, who waited the entire time. Then when the researcher came back in, they indeed got the reward of the second marshmallow. So all of us are familiar with this now. What's interesting about this is that the researchers at the time had no idea how powerful this experiment would be because the researchers ended up like following up with the children in regular intervals. And I think they might even still be. So that would be like 50 years of like data by now, right? And they found out that the children who are willing to delay the gratification at age four or five would continue to. And those children would end up receiving higher SAT scores and lower levels of substance abuse and lower likelihood of unhealthy weight gain or better responses to stress, and many more advantages that we're finding. This all led the researchers to conclude that the ability to resist immediate gratification is directly tied to success in life. And in fact, that's what we're actually going to see in this text from a spiritual vantage point. Guys, we're going to see Isaac and Abraham do this well, and we're going to see Jacob and Esau 
not do this well. So here's the main idea today if you're taking notes. True faith is about deferring the immediate in favor of the eternal. True faith for a Christian is about deferring the immediate. Maybe what you think is best, what maybe feels right. We defer the immediate in favor of the eternal or what's best in God's agenda. So today, guys, I'm going to give you five things to hold on to as you wait. Maybe you feel like you're that kid in that experiment room and you're just kind of waiting to see what's going to happen and you've got a choice in front of you that you want. And so I want to give you five things today that you can hold on to, you can lean on as you wait for God's timing and if you wait on God's purposes. So let's start here in verse 1 of chapter 25. It says, it starts out with saying, Abraham took another wife. And this was after the death of his first wife, Sarah. And her name was Keturah. And then verse two says that she bore him six more sons. Listen, that dude doesn't know when to quit. He is over 100 years old and he is still having children. This is wild. And then you can see their names, lots of names here that are hard to pronounce for me. Verse three, the second of those sons... Jokshan went on and fathered two more sons of his own, Sheba and Dedan. And those sons had two or three more sons. Verse four, then Abraham's fourth son, Midian, had five sons. And all of these children and grandchildren were of Abraham and Keturah. Now, we just got to pause for a second here and consider this question. Why are these four verses in the Bible? And why are the next 14 verses in the Bible all about people and names as well? Like what's so important that the author of this book wants to record the children and the grandchildren of Abraham? Like what's so significant about this that they would get their own section of scripture with all these names? And here's why. It's because the author wants to point out that God literally did everything he'd say he'd do everything in Abraham's life. God promised in Genesis 12 that Abraham's descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the what? In the sky. And this text is showing us that God did exactly that. Gave him numerous children and grandchildren. Guys, we see a family tree of God's faithfulness In Abraham's life in this passage, we see child after child after child being born in his line. After Abraham had year after year after year of infertility, if you remember that. Guys, and as we've seen week after week after week, we see it again in this text that God is what? God is faithful to fulfill his what, church? His promises. We have seen that again and again. Guys, are you tired of me saying that yet? Because I'm a little tired of me saying it, right? And guys, listen, when you get tired of hearing it, it might just be the point where your heart starts to get it. God is faithful to fulfill every promise that he's given to you in scripture. Guys, many of you, I know many of you and many of you watching online, many of you are in a season or you feel like you're in a season of waiting. You're waiting for something. You're hoping for something. For some of you, that's a spouse. For some of you, that is a child. Some of you, you're waiting for a job or graduation or your company to take off further. You're waiting for a health update. Maybe you're even waiting for a foster care update in what is next steps for your family. Or maybe you're like me and you're just waiting for grand jury to end. 
because it's going to take three months. But maybe you're in that place and maybe you're just flat out struggling in your season of waiting. Maybe you're like me and you get impatient in your waiting. You're getting frustrated. Maybe you're even getting possibly discouraged or depressed. And I want to give you two things from the onset for your heart today. If you're in that place of waiting and you're struggling with God's faithfulness and you're holding out in a season, here's two things. Number one, you need to hear this. Your waiting will not be wasted. Your waiting will not be wasted. Church, listen, he's doing something in you and for you, even if it's something that cannot be recognized by you. Guys, you don't know what he's up to. Church, you don't know why God is delaying something that maybe you've prayed for, that your heart yearns for, that's maybe a good thing. Guys, you don't know, but what we do know is that God is doing something in you, for you, even if it's not recognized by you. Your waiting is not wasted by God. He's at work even behind the scenes in your waiting. In fact, that's what we actually learned last week with Isaac, right? Isaac was 40 years old and he was not yet married, which was odd during those days and times, not as much today, but during those days and times. And he was waiting for a spouse. And all while he was waiting, God was preparing something behind the scenes for Isaac. So guys, often if you're waiting, it's not a punishment, not because you did something wrong. God may just be preparing something behind the scenes that is good for you. Guys, Christmas was obviously a few months ago. And uh, Emily and I had celebrated Christmas early with our girls. And often if we give a big present to our girls, it takes a little bit longer for us to wrap or prepare. And we often wrap it like during the daytime when our kids are in rest time. And like, we don't want to do that in the evenings because we just want to hang out, like watch TV and just like talk with each other. So we don't do that in the evenings. But often our girls are like, can we come out of our room now? And we're like, no, like we're wrapping your present. This is taking forever. They'd respond like, well, it takes some time. We're wrapping up your present. Five minutes later, are you done yet? Just over and over. And we remind our girls, hey, sometimes the biggest presents have the biggest weight. I'm not saying that's true for all of us, Christian, but listen, sometimes your season of waiting is because God is preparing something. He's preparing something for you. And we need to wait and be patient on God's timing. So listen, your waiting will not be wasted. I don't know what's going to be the result if you're going to get what your heart wants, but God's going to give you what your heart needs, which is ultimately something about him for your good and his glory. Your waiting will not be wasted. Number two, we talk about this often. I just try to say it in a fresh way today, but God will bring good from every gap and every grief that you face. God will bring good from every gap and every grief that you face. And guys, we see that clearly in these points and with Abraham's story. And you'll be able to see them in your own story as well. If you remember, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, were infertile. They were unable to have children. They had infertility for decades, almost 100 years for Sarah. And in this gap in grief, God brought good in the midst of it. So guys, if you're experiencing like today, this week, this season, if you feel like grief or this gap in your longing is just like too big for you to, to navigate right now, I want you to know that good can come from that. God can bring good from that. And just because you don't see it today doesn't mean that God's not working it out for you tomorrow. 
If you're a guest, you're gonna hear the scripture a lot in our church. It helps us to hold on to the promises. It's Romans 8, 28. For we know that because of God's love for us, we're able to love him and God promises to work out all things for our good Christian. The good, the bad, the ugly, the dark, everything. He can work out all things for our good. So church, again, God will bring good from every gap and every grief that you faced. Now, next, we're going to see this in verse five and six. We're going to see that the text takes a little bit of a pivot here. It goes from the sons being named, which we just saw, to the sons being blessed. We see a pivot. It says that Abraham then gave all that he had to Isaac, the scripture says. And that word all simply means Abraham's inheritance that the firstborn son would get on, upon his father's death which included for the firstborn son, a double portion of the land. That firstborn would get the rights to lead the family household and the responsibility to care for all that the father did. And this would be the inheritance that was given to the firstborn. So that's what it means by Abraham then gave all he had to Isaac. Verse six, but there was other kids, right? But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts, meaning that Abraham also had other children. And he loved his other children who were born through other marriages that he had during his long lifetime, namely his wife, Hagar, if you remember her, and his new wife, Keturah. So although, listen, it was an imperfect love that Abraham had for his children. It was imperfect. Abraham did, though, want to bless others the way that God had blessed him. So Abraham gets to 175 years old. He goes through all of his stuff. He starts making his will. And he's like, I can't die and bring this with me. So who can I bless with what I have? And church, it's in that moment that, guys, let's not wait till like we're 175 years old or 80 or 70 to start blessing others with what we have, okay? Abraham gets the end of his life. He looks at everything he has and then he starts to kind of bless others. Guys, let's not wait to the end to start blessing. So guys, let me ask you, how often are you trying to bless others with what you have been blessed with? Guys, are you generous in blessing others? Are you sacrificial in blessing others? Guys, let's not wait to be 175 years old to bless others with our time and our talents, our, our treasures and more. God has given us church so much so much blessing, so many abilities, so many talents. And let's not wait to start giving that to one another, to bless our community as a church and our community of Brighton. Let's do this a little bit earlier than when Abraham started to do this. So what we see next is that Abraham blesses his children and then he sends them away eastward, like away from Isaac, his son, to the east country, verse seven. So these are the days of the years of Abraham's life. It's 175 years. So what happens? Abraham then breathed his last and he died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and he was gathered to his people. Verse nine. So his two sons who were the first sons he had are Isaac and Ishmael. Remember Ishmael? He shows back up on the scene now. He hears of his dad's funeral. Someone sent him a message. And Isaac and Ishmael show back up and they bury him in the cave of Mechpelah. You guys remember that? 
It's the field of Ephraim and Zophar, the Hittite, east of Mamre. Remember that from chapter 23? It's the field, verse 10, that Abraham purchased from the Hittites as the first piece of the promised land. And it's in that place that Abraham was buried with his wife, Sarah. And at last, he reached the promised land, just as God had what? Promised. Again and again and again, you see whatever God said he's going to do. Church, same thing. If God promises you something in scripture that he'll be good to you, he'll be your refuge, he'll guide you, he'll lead you, he'll forgive you. If he said it, he'll do it. You see it over and over again. Verse 11, then after the death of Abraham, this is key, God blessed Isaac, his son. And then Isaac settled right there. Now, just a quick note here which I'm saying a thousand times over and over, we see God fulfill every promise that he gave to Abraham, every promise. And even he laid to rest in the promised land that God promised 100 years earlier. Even if we forget God's promises, God won't forget God's promises. And what a great ending to Abraham's life, right? God said in Genesis 12, I'm gonna bring you to the promised land. Genesis 25, where does God end up with Abraham? In the promised land. Land. But even though Abraham's life ends here, what happens? His legacy continues. It continues with his son Isaac. In verse 11, we see that God blesses Isaac. How does he do that? God blesses Isaac through pursuing a relationship of love and truth and grace with Isaac, just like he did with Abraham. And that's what we see here in the next section with Isaac and Rebekah. And then their two sons, Jacob and Esau. Section two keeps continuing with God's faithfulness. It says in verse 19, now these are the generations of Isaac. It's Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife. And listen what happens in verse 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. Now why? Because she was also barren. Now, guys, we've been down this road before with this family's story, haven't we? Remember Sarah and Abraham that I mentioned? Guys, we learned that they were barren too. For decades, almost a century, Abraham and Sarah were. But what's different for Isaac and Rebecca here? Guys, there's a little bit more insult to injury with, with their barrenness. Because we see in the verses prior that Isaac's brother Ishmael, that dude in verse 12 through 18 is just pumping out children, like left and right. Dude's firing off 12 sons back to back to back to back to back. 12 kids who end up growing up and establishing nations. While Isaac and Rebekah, on the other hand, in verse 21, are unable to have any kids, like not even one. And already, if you remember, Isaac and his brother Ishmael, they got some beef with each other. And Ishmael can have a bunch of kids. Isaac can't have any. And guys, just just, just going to be honest with you for a moment. Like if I was Isaac, I'd be totally confused. I'd be so confused right now. Like I'd be like, God, didn't you just say in verse 11 that you blessed me? And then like, I can't have any children. Which children during that time was a sign of blessing from God in those days? Like I'd be so confused. I'd be so bitter. I'd be so frustrated. God, why are you blessing Ishmael with all of these children, with a long family line? 
I can't even have kids. I thought you would bless me. I thought I have a relationship with you by faith. Ishmael doesn't. Ishmael's not even living for you, God, and I am. Why aren't you giving me anything? How often have we felt that way, by the way? Like, God, I'm giving everything to you. Why won't you give anything to me? Like, that's exactly where Isaac could be. But he's not there. He's not there. Because I want you to notice this. Listen, rather than getting bitter at what someone else had, he gets better at trusting God's plan and timing for him. Guys, he turns his pain into prayer and he presses into his relationship with God rather than away from it. And church, I wish that you and I would do the very same thing. Guys, in the waiting, here's number three for you to jot down. In the waiting, I wish that you and I could turn our pain into prayer and that we would press into our relationship with God rather than away from it. And that's exactly what Isaac is doing. Rather than getting bitter, he's getting better at trusting God and his timing. Church, let me ask you, how are you currently processing the areas of hurt in your life? The area of pains and bitterness and fear. How are you doing processing that in your life right now? Like, are you getting bitter at your circumstances that you're facing? Or are you getting better at trusting God with your circumstances? Like, are you lashing out at others like Isaac could have done with Rebecca or Ishmael or even God for his circumstances? Are you lashing out at others? Or are you praying out your frustrations and, and disappointments, asking God for hope there and for help there and for healing wherever it's needed? Guys, this is what we see Isaac doing. And it's a big encouragement for us to do the same. Number three, again, we can turn our pain into prayer and we can press into our relationship with God rather than away from it. And that's what we see Isaac do. He's praying for his wife. Just a side note, we, we learn in this passage that Isaac's 40 years old when he gets married and then he's barren for an additional 20 years. So for 20 years, he's dealing with watching Ishmael just pump out children. And he thought that God would be blessing him with children so that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, could come through him. Because you may be dealing with years and decades of hardship and bitterness and questions and doubts. And this passage shows you that God sees where you're at as well. Maybe it's five years, 10 years, 20 years, and you're struggling too. Wondering, why did you do this to me, God? Or why didn't you do this for me, God? Why would you allow this? And we find a, a safe place with Isaac, understanding what that tension feels like. When you feel like maybe God has given up on you or he wasn't there for you. We find a place of safety with Isaac and God sees you there this morning. So by grace, this story continues. And we see in verse 21 that God hears Isaac's prayer. And then it says, verse 21, the Lord granted his prayer, like God did it. And Rebecca, his wife, conceived like 60 years old. 20 years later, they finally conceive. Verse 22, the children begin to struggle within her. And she said, if this is thus, God, why is this happening to me? So what does she do? She went to inquire of the Lord, not Google, not her friend group. She inquires of the Lord. Guys, Paul's right here. Do you not love Rebecca's response here? Like, I love her response. She asked the question we so often ask ourselves, right? God, why is this happening to me? 
This is the first time we see this recorded in the Bible. It's a question we ask so often if you've been walking with God for a while. Or maybe you haven't, you're a guest today, and you've asked that question, God, why are you letting something happen to me? She's feeling pain in her body. The pregnancy's not going well. She's hurting. She's confused. She went through all of these years of not having children, and then God allowed her to have children, and she's hurting. She's struggling. And she's like, why is this happening to me? Guys, isn't that just a little comforting? Knowing that you're not the only ones to have gone through what maybe you're going through right now, that other people have asked that question, why is this happening to me? Guys, I so often, we so often think that we're martyrs, that like we're the only one that bad things happen to, when in reality, bad things happen to all of us. And when we're in that place thinking, God, why is this happening to me? We can respond like Rebecca, where she turns her problems like Isaac into prayers. And she inquires God. She asks God for hope and help. And like God always does, church, like God always does in his time, in his way, he responds to our prayers. He always responds. In verse 23, the Lord speaks to her and he says to her, Rebecca, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other, and then the older shall serve the younger. Verse 24, so when her days to give birth were completed, she was ready. Behold, there were twins in her womb. Like boom, right? Those prayers were answered, and those must have been some really good prayers, right? Isaac prayed one prayer. Rebecca prayed one prayer. They didn't coordinate. God said yes to both, and they got twins, right? That's not exactly what happened. But you can just imagine, these are some really good prayers, right? Only if Isaac and Rebecca were around today to pray for all of your finances in your life, just to multiply them and make them in doubles, right? That's kind of what's happening here. But God is just pouring his blessing on to them. So here's what happens next on the twin's birthday, verse 25. The first twin, he comes out and he's red. All of his body's red. And it's really super hairy. It's like a cloak, it says. And so they called his name Esau, which literally means hairy. It's a great name. Like, how do you like that description? Red and hairy. Like, all that matches that description from my background is Elmo from Sesame Street. Just hairy and red, right? That's what comes to mind. And forever as you read Esau, that's what comes to your mind. You're welcome. Guys, I can't imagine. I, I obviously am, uh, my wife and I, we've shared before, we're not able to have children. But what I've heard from others is if that baby has lots of hair, the mom has lots of heartburn, imagine how Sarah feels, right? Lots of heartburn going on for her. No wonder why she's like, God, why is this happening to me? She's uncomfortable. There's kind of fighting of the twins going on, the womb. There's tons of hair. That's what's going on. It's kind of the answer. What's going on with her? Verse 26. Then afterward, his twin brother comes out. And he's holding on to Esau's heel. He's like grasping it, trying to be first place out of the womb, we imagine. So his name was called Jacob. And that name Jacob means to cease or to usurp, which is a foreshadowing of what Jacob will do with Esau, trying to get the upper hand on him, trying to pull Esau back and beat him to first place. Then this section ends with a bit of interesting commentary on the family. Now, listen, we've all got some interesting family. We've all got some family trauma, all got some family wounds. This family is no different. It says that Isaac was 60 years old 
when he bore them. Meaning again that they were 20 whole long years married and they still couldn't have kids. And again, I want you to notice the difference between Isaac's waiting and Abraham's waiting when they both were unable to have children in their life. Guys, Isaac waited prayerfully with patience and purpose, which by the way is number four. And you're waiting, may your prayers, you can pray with patience and with purpose. Isaac prayed for his wife. He remained patient with God's timing and he lived for God's purposes of his glory and not his own temporal desires in his time of waiting. Guys, that's not how Abraham, Abraham waited. Abraham got antsy and him and Sarah devised this plan to go and have this servant girl have a child with Abraham. And then Sarah wanted to steal that child and make it hers. She, they weren't waiting. They weren't prayerful. They weren't patient. You see a huge difference between Isaac's waiting and Abraham's waiting. May we all wait like Isaac, prayerfully, patiently, and with purpose. We, we serve God in our waiting. We don't give up on him. God has not turned his back, even if it feels like it's taking time. So Christian, if you're in a season of waiting, I ask you again, how is your faith holding up? Are you waiting more like Isaac for that child, for that spouse, for that job? for that answer, for the review, for that update on your health? Are you waiting more like Isaac, prayerfully, patiently, with purpose, or are you waiting like Abraham? Are you taking matters into your own hands like Abraham, deciding your will and your ways are best, or are you entrusting the matter into God's hands like Isaac, entrusting that God's will and God's ways are best? So then the commentary on his family continues. It moves away from Isaac, and then it reveals a stark contrast between the two brothers. They could not be any more different, okay? Verse 27 talks about these twins. They, the boys grow up and Esau ends up being a skillful, skillful hunter. He's a man of the field, it says. While Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Now, if you know my daughters, I've got a six-year-old and a four-year-old. They are very different personalities, very different. I won't explain all that, but there's very different children. What we see Isaac here is described as that stereotypical man's man. The dude is hairy. He likes to hunt. And then he eats what he kills. Scholars probably think he was from New Hampshire, right? Or South Carolina. And obviously, he's just kidding. That's, yeah, you get it. This is a joke, right? Guys, a pickup truck. He bought a new Carhartt jacket. That's Esau, Okay. But Jacob, on the other hand, is different. Jacob is a quiet guy. He's not a hunter. He's actually a shepherd and a chef. He likes to help his mom around the house and he prefers to hang out with her at home rather than go out and hunt with Esau. Guys, there's nothing wrong with either of these personalities. Neither of them are wrong. What is wrong, however, is Isaac and Rebekah's response to their children's personalities. Look at verse 28 says these sad words. Isaac, the dad, he loved Esau. Why? Not because he really loved who Esau was. Isaac loved Esau for what Isaac could get because Isaac ate of his game. What a selfish way to love your child. I only love you, kid, because of what you give to me, not because God gave you to me. 
Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah, the wife, Rebekah, loved the other kid. She loved Jacob. Parents, just a quick note here. Parents, one day, listen in. Be careful, guys, not to play favorites in your home. Your kids can feel it. They know. Sure, guys, listen, just to be very honest with you, your personality may gravitate towards one of the personalities of your children. But you've got to be mindful of this. And you've got to prayerfully work hard towards treating both children with the unique love that they need, the unique time that they need, and the unique care that each of them need. And church, even if you're not a parent or not going to parent, we can learn from all of this regardless. Guys, listen, let's not favor one type of person more than the other, whether that be age or ethnicity, someone's financial status, their educational experience, their personality, their style, their background. Guys, we cannot as Christians just gravitate and welcome one type of person in our church. Because of the gospel, because of Jesus extending the good news of his salvation to all, we should extend love and extend truth and extend grace to everyone and not start favoring one person over another. But unfortunately, Isaac and Rebecca weren't at this sermon today and they do play favorites. And it has a massive impact on Isaac and Esau. Guys, it causes massive problems in their home. Here's what happens. Verse 29, here's an episode of how it didn't go well. Verse 29, once upon a time, he's telling this story, once when Jacob was at home cooking stew, Isaac came, or excuse me, Esau came home from the field and he was, what's it say? He's exhausted. Now, just this quick side note for a moment. Um, exhaustion is often where the temptation in your life becomes at its highest, right? When we are exhausted from the stressors of work and life, your temptations in your life are increased. And we're going to see that with Esau as well. Verse 30. So Esau says to Jacob, hey, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. That kind of like barks at him here. Therefore, his name was called Edom. It's kind of a nickname for him, which also means red. Guys, this guy just, I can't, he just loves red. Like everything's red for him. He's a redhead dude. He loves red stew and he gets red fest angry at his brother here. Like everything's red for him. He just barks him, give me some of that red stew. Verse 31, and Jacob snaps back fast. And this is interesting. Snaps back, he says, sell me your birthright now. Now hold on a second. That's super interesting on Jacob's part. This statement is quick and it's calculated. It's a demand for Esau to sell his birthright to the family's inheritance. Remember I mentioned that earlier? You get double portion of the land. You're in charge of the family household. You begin to lead everyone else at the father's passing. And you're responsible for everything the father would have had when he lived. And that's what Jacob wants. He's calculated and quick in this demand. And you know what that reveals, guys? It reveals that Jacob has been thinking about this for a long time. And he didn't even hesitate. When Esau demanded food, Jacob demanded his birthright. It seems that he had been waiting for such a moment 
as this. Is that not how bitterness works, guys? Is that not how resentment works? Man, you're just waiting on the edge of your seat to bite someone's head off, to say a quick um, remark at somebody, to be harsh. When we respond this way, you know that you've been stewing like Isaac, or excuse me, stewing like Jacob in your bitterness, in your resentment. He's just not cooking stew. He is stewing in his sin. And that's what you see happening. Guys, when, when you re- realize how you're responding to others, you're frustrated, you're quick-tempered, you say snide remarks, you're always critical. It's showing what your heart is stewing in. This is a moment for us to consider, where are you stewing? Where are you struggling with bitterness? Isaac and Esau do not handle this well, and often we don't either. Guys, this is often the way temptation works with us, by the way. Temptation seeks and waits for the right moment to attack our spiritual birthright. And what is our spiritual birthright? Birthright, it's our relationship with God. We are born again into a relationship with God. We're not born through our mother. We're born through faith in Jesus. We're born again into a new relationship. That's our spiritual birthright. And that's what temptation seeks to do. It takes us to take us away from that relationship with God. So Jacob's response shows us the bitterness that has been growing in his heart as the second son that is loved less by his dad. Guys, it seems to me that Jacob has indeed been waiting for this moment. He's been trying to figure out, how can I trick Esau into giving me his birthright, giving me his inheritance? Why? So that Jacob can nurse his wounds with riches and revenge. Maybe it's so that he could even steal his brother's place and be his dad's favorite so that maybe he would be loved too. Guys, this is a really sad and manipulative moment in Jacob's life. And it reveals just how hurt and bitter his heart really is. Verse 32, then Isaac, or excuse me, I keep saying Isaac. They're both in the story, but you get it. Verse 32, then Esau said, Jacob, I'm about to die. He's so dramatic. He's so much like me. He ain't about to die. He's fine. He's like, of what use is the birthright to me right now? I need food. Like, dude, like, you're fine. Like, verse 33, Jacob said, swear to me now. He's trying to barter a deal fast because he knows that, that Esau can just get food anywhere. So he's like, swear to me right now. Give me your birthright. So Esau swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Now, again, if I can just be honest, I don't think Esau was really about to die. He was just really hungry. Have you ever said it before? I am like so hungry, I could die. Especially our teenage years when you're just eating everything to keep up with your metabolism. That's kind of where Esau's at. I'm sure he had been out in the field hunting. He hadn't caught anything and he was just hangry about it. He comes home and here's what happens. Esau lets his circumstances dictate his convictions. And it's because of that, he caved to his cravings. Church, we do the very same thing, do we not? Rather than letting our biblical convictions speak into our circumstances, we let our cravings do the talking and we listen to it. And what's it lead us to? Lentil stew. Y'all, that's garbage. We have so many good restaurants in Boston to eat from. I'm not making any cultural jokes or anything against lentil stew. I'm just saying there are so many better options to sell your birthright for if you're really gonna do it than lentil stew. And that's what happens with Esau. Church, are you letting your circumstances do the same to you? 
Are you letting your cravings for pleasure win over your convictions for pleasing God? That's what's happening here. Church, are you letting your cravings, your circumstances dictate your convictions or do you let your convictions speak to your circumstance and say, I'm gonna remain faithful. I may be hungry. I may have a desire. I may have a want for something, but I'm gonna trust God's ways because I know he knows what's best for me. I know he knows what's best. So then the passage ends with this really sad and sobering exchange between the brothers. Verse 34, it says this. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. By the way, bread wasn't mentioned in the contract. I just imagine Esau from how we learn him later. I think he's just super manipulative. Let me sweeten up the deal a little bit. I'll give you some bread on top of this lentil stew so you don't back out on me. Guys, we can manipulate people too. You don't just have to be revengeful. You can be manipulative in your bitterness. And that's what we see with Jacob. Jacob gave Esau some bread, some lentil stew. And here's what happens. It's, it's like eerie how quiet it is. Esau ate, Esau drank, Esau rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright and gave it to Jacob. Now again, did you notice what Jacob gave to Esau? It's not a rich, meaty stew. It's not Emily all, every winter makes this bomb, super like death chili. It's got more meat than like anything, ton of beans, tomatoes. It's fantastic. Some peppers, I, I love it. It's not rich, meaty stew. It's lentil stew. And isn't this how temptation works? The shiny thing we so desire, once we get it, it's not as good as we expected it to be. This text suggests that Esau's pretty disappointed here. He ate, he drank, he rose, he went on his way. There's no commentary. He was just extra a minute ago. I'm dying here. You'd imagine him be like, this is the greatest thing ever. Like there's no commentary. He just ate, he drank, he rose, and he went on his way. His silence is like eerie for us. I can just imagine him sitting there in silence, both of them, getting up, walking away, regretting, knowing that he had given away everything, the double portion of the land, the rights to lead the family household, and the responsibility to care for everything like the father did. Which just leads us to the fifth and final last point. It's nothing fancy. Hope you remember it. Don't sell your birthright for stew. The most bland point I could give you but hopefully just super clear. Don't sell your birthright. Don't sell your convictions. Don't sell your relationship with God. Don't give up on God's good ways for you, for stew, for something lesser. Friends, this passage is honestly just so easy for us to apply. How often do we give up our privileged blessings as children of God for temporary pleasures? Like how easy it, is it for you to just grab the bowl of sin soup rather than grabbing a hold of your future inheritance of what you have in God? Because Christianity gives us more fuel to delay immediate gratification than anything. Why? Because for Christians, we know that what we have in heaven, our inheritance is way more than what we could ever have on earth. Christian, listen, true faith is all about deferring the immediate in favor of the eternal to believe that what's coming for you in heaven is better than what's offered for you on earth. That's what it means to have true faith. 
that nothing that this earth could have to offer is as good as what God has offered in himself for you. His life, death, resurrection, and blessings and promises through Jesus. As we say often, our hearts cannot go after creation to satisfy. We've got to go for the creator to satisfy our longings. And that's what we're seeing here not happen in this passage. Friends, the day-to-day life of a Christian is to delay instant gratification while you wait on the day for Jesus to return. Guys, how many times, just be honest with your own heart. I, I gotta be honest here too. Like how many times have you just refused to delay the sexual gratification you feel? And instead of choosing God's ways, you choose lentil stew of pornography or adultery, or you've adopted the hookup, shack up, break up cultural moment. Guys, how many times have we given into the impulsivity of instant gratification that is shown in addiction or in gambling or lying or greed that feels good in the moment, but in the long run, they'll end up tasting the disappointment of lentil stew. Because maybe you don't deal with these taboo sins, we'd say, but maybe what happens if someone crosses you, like irritates you, bothers you, especially maybe it's a spouse, a roommate, coworker, maybe it's your kid. And maybe you give into the instant satisfaction of anger. It's an outburst against them. In that moment, you refuse to show patience. You don't delay your anger and you just give it to them. You scream at them. You yell at them. You lash back. Maybe that's how it works out for you. But get this. This is really important, guys. In the book of Titus, it teaches us that the grace of God is training us is training us to renounce these lesser worldly passions. So listen, self-control isn't about earning the grace of God. The grace of God is training us to be obedient to him because his ways are better than our ways. And we can't trust our hearts. How many times have you trusted what you thought was right, what felt good, and then you end up like, man, that was a mistake. Guys, we can't even trust our hearts because Jeremiah teaches us that the heart is deceitful. It's wicked. It doesn't know what's good for you. And so God in his grace extends out this way and plan of living in his ways for your good and God's glory. Guys, our future hope, Christian, for all of you is that Christ is returning. Christ is returning is your greatest hope for you. It's training you to renounce momentary pleasures. Why? Because you're gonna get eternal joys. What's in heaven is better than what's offered on earth. So you can say no to lesser joys because of what's greater for you in heaven. So listen, church, we don't deserve, just to be honest with you, we don't deserve heaven. We don't deserve an inheritance with God. We don't deserve salvation. Guys, we have all betrayed God. We have all traded the birthright for lentil stew. All of us have taken worldly passions, selfish desires, and we've traded God's commands for some soup. But yet here's the good news of the gospel. Through faith in Jesus, even though we've given up our birthright, Jesus gives us his birthright, which means his salvation, his righteousness, because he's the firstborn. Guys, the scripture tells us that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He's the only begotten son of God. He had the ultimate birthright. He's got all the authority, all the riches, all the glory, all the righteousness. He didn't treat his birthright flippantly. He didn't demand that his own desires be met. And when he could have traded, he had a moment like Jacob and Esau, he could have traded his birthright. Remember that scene? 
In the book of Matthew chapter 4, when Satan takes him up to the high mountain and Satan says, listen, I'll do a trade with you. I'll give you power and authority if you'll just bow your knee to me. He's given the same moment that Esau gives, but Jesus doesn't give in. He doesn't trade. He says, be gone, Satan. He remains faithful. And then Jesus lays down his life for you. Instead, Jesus makes a trade with us, not the enemy, but with us. He trades us for what's better. He traded the birthright of his righteousness for our lentil soup of sin. Jesus exchanged his righteousness for our sinfulness so that when we receive this gift by grace, we are saved and then satisfied. Guys, I wish I could spend some time. I don't think it'd be appropriate in this setting just to, just to walk through my history of all the sin and sexual gratification, everything I've done and stole in my past life before I was a Christian, all of that. I wish I could share all of that with you. And then Christ was willing to take all of that soup that I ate, took it on himself on the cross and then gave me his righteousness. So he didn't just save me from sin. He wanted to save me from wanting that sin. He wanted to save me from going there again. He wants to satisfy me. And Christian, that's what God is offering you, not just to save you, but to satisfy you, to give you something better than what your hearts could crave. That's what the story of Jacob and Esau is. Jesus is the better faithful Esau. He is the non-manipulative Jacob. He offers a trade like Jacob and Esau did. Would you, if you've not yet, guest or non-Christian that I've gathered today. I'm so glad you're here. Would you hear the invitation for you in this message? It's to trade. It's the greatest deal ever. Take your sin and say, God, I've sinned against you. I want to give it all to you. My past, present, and sins, I don't even know I'm going to do that. I want to give all of that record to you. And Jesus, because you're perfect, will you give me your perfect record on me? Would you forgive me and help me to be viewed by you as righteous and perfect? And that's what salvation is. That's how you have a relationship with God. God takes your sin. God gives you his righteousness. That's what this story is about. Make the better trade. Christian, don't trade what you have that's good in him. Christian, this story is for all of us. You have been given wonderful, wonderful blessings and pleasures in Christ. Don't trade them for something lesser. In your waiting, be prayerful, be patient, and be purposeful. Let's pray.